The critics are praising The Princess Bride. Roger Ebert. I'm going to say right now that I thought this was one of the funniest and most charming comedies that I've seen in a long time. Joel Siegel. Rob Reiner's found the place where Walt Disney meets Monty Python. He's made a movie that's exciting and thrilling. It's an adventure film, a love story. It's very funny and absolute magic. Bye-bye, boys! Have fun storming the castle! The Princess Bride, rated PG. Now playing at theaters everywhere. Well, we're kicking off February with a little romance and a little adventure. And we're going to start with a, with a story that I used to read to David every time he got a little, little sick, a little under the weather. This would always uh, cheer him up a little bit. We're going to be looking at The Princess Bride. That's right. Welcome back to a brand new episode of Reconsinimation. I'm your host, John Diner. I'm David Munchak. I'm Brent Hutchins. And this is the podcast that takes a look back at some of our favorite films from the 70s, 80s, and 90s. We're checking out how they hold up here today, and it's another big one. This is a, this one's been on the list since the beginning. Absolutely, it was Classic. when we were making the list. We got to launch a podcast. We got to talk movies. What are the hot movies we're gonna reconsinimize? And uh, I don't know what number it was, but it's definitely a, a top choice. This was like top five, and it stayed in the top five for six years until. <laughs> The it it finally came around. Yeah, yeah, it was time. It was time. But twenty twenty four. Here we are. We uh, we're we're doing the Princess Bride. I'm I'm very excited. There's a lot to talk about on this one. Absolutely. Absolutely. This is a, a childhood favorite. Yeah, totally. And there's yeah, there's just there's so much here. There's so much history in this movie. And and uh, but let's let's before we get into the film, let's let's get through some of our segments here. So I'm going to start off with uh, our our game, Six Degrees of Reconcinimation, where I'm going to throw out a movie and David and Brent, by the end of the episode, are going to connect The Princess Bride to it in as few moves as possible. So I'm going to throw out another fairy tale movie. That's right, the 1985 Arnold Schwarzenegger fairy tale, Commando. Yeah. That's exactly Amanda. where I thought you were going with that. <laughs> uh, I know, you saw that one coming. Uh-huh, uh-huh. All right, I'm thinking through so, it already. All right, so we'll circle back at the end of the episode, see what you guys came up with. Uh, but yeah, Brent, we're going to change it up a little bit. Brent, why don't you run us through what, what's happening in The Princess Bride? The Princess Bride is a classic fairy tale adventure that combines romance, humor, and fantasy. The story revolves around the true love between Buttercup and Wesley, who is presumed dead but returns as the dread pirate Roberts. Buttercup is set to marry Prince Humperdinck against her will. As she navigates political intrigue and danger, Wesley, along with an eclectic group of companions, including Inigo Montoya and Fezzik, strives to rescue her. The film is known for its witty dialogue, memorable characters, and a narrative structure that includes a framing device where a grandfather reads the story to his grandson. Full of swashbuckling action, the movie is a delightful mix of romance, adventure, with a touch of whimsical charm. A lot of whimsy, a lot of whimsy, lot of whimsy. and Princess Bride. All right, thank you, Brent. David, bring us back yeah. to the the incredible year that was 1987. What's what's happening here? 
1987, around October 9th. Yeah, when this October 9th. Premiered. Yep. Uh, so when the Princess Bride premiered, uh, you may have been heard. You may have heard people asking, "Who's that girl?" Uh, talking about Robin Wright making her big studio film debut. But they also might have been talking about Madonna and her music single and the movie of the same name that came out that year. Uh, Ronnie Ray Ray is still the U.S. president, bumbling around the White House, and audiences met a new captain of the USS Enterprise D with Star Trek: The Next Generation debuting only a couple weeks before this movie came out uh kids are crushing the trading card game with garbage pail kids postage stamps only cost 22 cents in the united states and bc dominated the airwaves with things like the cosby show golden girls alf and la law and abc abc followed close behind with growing pains who's the boss and moonlighting and fox was just getting started in prime time with 21 jump street mary with children america's most wanted and a lot of others um also uh Whitney Houston, White Snake, and Lisa Lisa and Cult Jam were hitting the top of the Billboard charts around this time of the year. Baby Jessica McClure would fall down the well and capture the heart of a nation in just another week or two from the premiere of this movie. And the U.S. stock market would crash in October, which would affect international markets. It was a crazy time. It and was. That, Remember the whole Baby Jessica thing? Baby oh Jessica. Goodness. Yeah. I didn't was... remember it. It has a news story, but I remember the TV miniseries like uh, the <laughs> yeah. following year. Yeah. I was like, wait, this really happened? What? <laughs> she was I think the one that's that got how it got on pipe, our radar. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my she God. Was, yeah. Just that, that, when that, when that was in Texas, right? That was like a big, was it Texas? I think so. I, I think like, it was. Yeah. I feel like a, the Texan in the room would remember. I was, well, what? I was in Texas. I was, yeah, I was in Texas. I remember it being on the news for he sure. He was too busy. He was too busy with the, the garbage pail kids cards. He was too I busy was, dealing. Those are facts. That's no <laughs> doubt. I had, I wish I had kept those, man. I took them all off because they were stickers and I put them all over my bed and my dresser. Yeah. I'm such an idiot. Oh yeah. I had all those over magazines and comic books, like totally yeah. ruined them, you know, they have them Wait, still. You can still right. buy them. You could, yeah. yeah. There's new sets now. There's new can, sets. I have a, I have a handful. Brainy Brian, nostalgia. Adam yeah. Bomb is the, the only one. Adam, that... Yeah, Adam Bomb, Bad Beth, Breath, Seth. Uh, that was yeah. good. Nasty Nick. <laughs> well, we should uh, we should hold off the baby Jessica talk till we on our other podcast where we talk through '80s uh, TV movies of the week. Uh, we we could talk about the baby Jessica movie over there too. Oh, fair One of our many side podcasts that we do. Uh, but yeah, let's get back to uh, Princess Bride. When was the first time this movie came on on your radar, Brent? We'll start with you. Did you see it in the theater or was it a home video deal? You know, I honestly, I can't remember. I feel like it was a home video deal that, and, and my mom rented it for me to watch when I was sick. And I feel like it was a double feature of like this and maybe something like the boy who could fly. I don't know. It was a Fred Savage heavy day. And, <laughs> and I, I don't know if that's actually when I saw it or I've, I've just created that memory in in my head because I, I love the, like that that grandfather reading to the grandson aspect of of this movie but i recall having very similar kind of feelings of like the kissing and all that stuff and the love story aspect and so anytime fred would interject i'd be like yeah dude we're on the same 
we're on the same page. So I'm going to go with that, but I can't confirm it. Okay. That's fair. That feels right though. That feels, yeah. that, that feels accurate. Uh, David, what about you? I felt this was a, this was a movie that was on TV every, almost every weekend it seemed for me. So I, I don't even remember renting it. I didn't see it in the theater. I don't think, but I'd seen so many, so many parts of this movie and the entire film so many times from its television broadcasts uh, over time. I mean, I don't remember the first time, but it was, uh, it's one of those movies that was always there for me. So, so many moments and lines, all the, the, so many lines are pretty much just have a rhythmic quality. Like it's a, it's a lullaby uh, to, to the, this ancient brain. Um, so it, it's, it's hard to even find moments that like to be surprised by, or like things I never noticed. I mean, just watching it again, I'm like, there's nothing new here. I, I, I know this, I couldn't, I, you know, I couldn't quote it from start to finish blindly, but I know the movie inside and out, like, and it's just, uh, so it's, yeah, it's just always been there. It's the movie's like a great sandwich that you never get tired of. You know, you go to like, you go to like Cantor's Deli or wherever, and you get that, that roast beef mm-hmm. sandwich or that corned beef. And, you know, it's just, uh, just great every time. It's the same thing. Like never misses. <laughs> Mm-hmm. I, I don't think watching it now, it's not one of those movies where you, where you do find like all those hidden things. And it's like, Oh, there's something new that I didn't see the first, you know, 10 times I saw it, but I'm still catching that. Like some of the other Christopher guest things, like you can get that. And there's obviously other, other comedies where you can, this isn't that, but it's just still, it's just still so beautiful. <laughs> as a movie. Yeah. Um, doesn't age, but, uh, yeah, the, I, I saw this. This was a movie that my dad definitely picked up on our Friday night movie uh, tradition, pizza and a movie. He'd pick up pizza, pick up a movie from Movies 1 in Peekskill, New York, and would uh, and we would enjoy Friday night together. And, and this was definitely one of those. And I feel like I saw it a bunch of times in that, like, 1988, maybe 89 zone. And then I never saw it again till I think it came out on DVD and uh, sort of rediscovered it. It was another, you know, I've mentioned this before, like just as you, you know, sometimes as you go through your teenage years and into college there's certain movies that just disappear from your radar. And, and for me, this was one of those that I almost never even thought about it till when it came on DVD, I was like, oh my God. Yeah. Like, absolutely. Yes. And fell back way back in love with it. And, uh, and then as my kids got a little bit older, we, we watched it together and same thing, just everybody in the house loves it. And it's definitely one we can put on and just have a good time with. So I think it's pretty great that transition from VHS to DVD, like a lot of the, these like movies that kind of, you know, we saw as children, but then, then aged out of a little bit, they got re-released on DVD with extras and you know, it kind of rekindled a lot of our loves for some of these, some of these older films that, that, you know, were childhood favorites, but, but had been off our radar. So, uh, you know, this is certainly one of those, uh, there's so many though, but this is, this is one of them for sure. Yeah. And I think there's so much, you know, I don't know, I don't know if it's just, I don't think it's just our age group, but it's, it is especially our age group about what, what's so identifiable about this movie. And I think it is that 
that the frame of the frame story of Fred Savage as the grandson and Peter Falk as the grandfather, that's such a brilliant way to get an audience like into your story that us as kids, like we were saying, Brent, completely identified with Fred Savage. <laughs> right. That well, it, it it almost it almost deceives you, right? Like I, I'm almost positive the reason I didn't see this in the theater is because the movie's title is called The Princess Bride. Right. And that as a child didn't resonate with me as a young boy. But then you're homesick or you're home, it gets rented on on VHS and you're watching it. And right out of the gate, the initial connection is Fred Savage, who at the time was, you know, like an up. I don't know if Wonder Years was out yet or not, but I, was I don't in, Wonder Years, I think, started in 88. So I think it was right after this. OK, so but he had started to show up in things and but he's relaying information again. This is all from a perspective of like a young boy growing up at the time. But but he's relaying information that you're feeling as you're watching. You know, I mean, I just rewatched this again for the podcast and I watched it with my son who's currently, you know, he's 11 and same reactions, you know, like he's just echoing the same kind of feeling and uneasiness of, of some of the opening love story stuff. And then this cool, fun adventure with intrigue and this dread pirate Roberts. And like, you know, I mean, it's this awesome sword fight. You got Andre the giant who at the time for us was a big deal at that age. But my son, I saw the movie. (laughs) Yeah, my son, who's only just barely grazed professional wrestling, knows who Andre the Giant is. The guy's still, you know, he's been, he passed away so many years ago, but he's still larger than life and totally recognizable. And it's like, the story just continues to develop and get more and more fun. It's 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 really well-crafted and it's very smart about what it's doing. And it makes it impossible to not like sit down and watch and just kind of, get completely enamored by are uh, yeah I, I think there's a lot of young especially boys who probably were turned you know not turned on to the movie by the title knowing it's a love story i'm sure there there's plenty that are but there's there's also there a, a, a section that wasn't uh and starting it off immediately with like the grandson saying the exact same things that that the young audience <laughs> is thinking is like brings you right in and you identify with him and then you're on board as the grandfather, you know, really a sweet story of the grandfather visiting his grandson who's kind of, you know, sick and crabby and doesn't want to hear it and just wants to like lay there and play video games and how the grandfather has to kind of elbow his way into the, to the grandson's life there. (laughs) Just like this story is having to do with some of the audience. Right. But it certainly does. And, uh, and really, that love story is really just the first, what, five minutes of the movie? And then before we right. get to Dread Pirate Roberts, and then, you know, then then it's taken care of. So such so a smart way to, to, to frame the story. So um, right off the bat, just just good way to identify with your audience. And, and overall, like just mixing the mixing of genres here, like it's it's a romance, it's action, it's adventure, it's got great characters it's funny it's clever um it's just it's such a great blend of 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 all these different genres it's uh you know and a lot of that is some of that is due to like these these great casting choices 
which we're going to get into, but this cast is incredible. Even yeah. Andre the Giant, like it's really bold casting choices that these people looking at where they were in their careers, like nobody's really a star. I guess Andre the Giant's the technically the biggest star in the movie, right? I mean, kind of, but he's also like obscure, you know, like, I mean, he's. Well, he's a star to us, a, a, you know, particular audience. But like you were saying, he's also one of those characters that went beyond professional wrestling. You know, he was he was a huge star about to be bigger, you know, right after he shot this movie right before it released. But yeah. um, I mean, maybe 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 the bigger name is Peter Falk, because at that time, like he was kind of he was Columbo and that was uh, an extremely popular show. But like, you're right. There's not anybody in here who carried a list star power by any means. Right. When I used to watch on cable or cable or the Saturday afternoon affiliates and all that, it would often be welcome back to the princess bride starring Billy Crystal and Carol King. And it was always Billy Crystal and Carol because Billy Crystal was the, he was the biggest name. I think he was probably the biggest name. Right, that's, yeah. you're right. I forgot about Billy. Yeah, stand up, but it's but but you know he's relegated to a character under heavy makeup that's around for two scenes. That it's it's five minutes of the movie, and it's great. It's wonderful, and it's it's pure like Billy Crystal in his element, like perfect. Of course, Rob Reiner would bring him in. Like it's a perfect of course, part. Yeah. You know, like it's yeah. just. Um, so yeah, like, uh, but I mean, he's not the star of the movie by any stretch or anything like that. You know, he's just, he's a glorified cameo. Um, but a scene, but a scene stealer nonetheless. Oh yeah. A hundred percent. Yeah. Well, we'll talk yeah. about Billy and, and Miracle Max here, Absolutely. but, uh, yeah, I think you, you guys are right. It, it's the top three, I guess we'd say is Billy Crystal, Peter Falk, Andre the giant. Yeah. And none and of them are the lead characters. <laughs> Yeah. And Andre the Giant is the type. I mean, that was the thing about wrestling. Like, even people that didn't watch WWF wrestling at the time, like, they knew who some of these superstars were. They knew they they were household names or kids were talking about yeah. them or they're showing up in other media or whatever. Yeah. And just, just like him being in this movie, it's like most, a lot of audiences, I'm sure like a lot of parents, like, probably knew who he was, even though they've never seen a wrestling match, you know? Well, and that, that's what's funny about wrestling is like when you you know ask anybody, really, literally like anybody on the street, you can ask them like they're going to say Hulk Hogan, Andre the Giant, Roddy Piper, Macho Man, Ultimate Warrior. You know, mm-hmm. you don't have to be a fan because certain people, when they get to a certain level, just become part of pop culture. Yeah. You know, yeah, whether you awesome. watch it or not, you just know of them. So mm-hmm. and Andre for sure was at that, you know, probably at this time it was really just hogan and andre right yeah 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 so yeah, every everybody knows who hulk hogan was uh, or yeah. he is or whatever still like like, like now you can throw you know steve austin and the rock in there but that that's like it's still that list of people and some of them have been dead for quite a number of years andre's <laughs> been dead just about 31 years almost to the day uh as as this airs so oh wow and has he really yeah yeah, yeah. january 93 Man, I thought it was more recent than that. That's crazy. Yeah, but he's still, you know, people still know of him. Like HBO has a document, you know, a great documentary that came out about him. There's, you know, there's books and it's still like still a relevant name. But that's, you know, that's again, that's when when an athlete or performer or whatever becomes part of pop culture, they just stay there. They don't really 
you know, disappear too much. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, but I mean, even, but everyone else, all the lead roles, you know, Wesley, Buttercup, Inigo, all new, basically new faces to the, uh, the big screen, you know, not necessarily their first role, but uh, first lead role like this for sure. Yeah. And all would go on to have, you know, amazing careers, which we're going to kind of walk through in a little bit, but um, and uh, you know, the, the other thing I, lo I just love the tone of this movie. There's something about the, the cinematography, the design of the sets, the lighting, the music, you know, Mark, Mark Knopfler's beautiful score that all comes together. And it feels like a fair, like a children's fairy tale to me. Do you guys feel that way? Like, does it have that sense to you? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, this is this is definitely reads like any fairy tale, like just like because it's got just enough adventure and fantasy elements and that like this, the stakes are all the same of those like fairy tales, you know, like sort yeah. of rescuing some rescuing the princess who's, you know, who doesn't want to marry the king or whatever. Like that's that's exciting. That's exciting fantasy stuff. Easy, yeah. easy to access, you know. <laughs> And I think there's a, like, just visually, I think there's a soft texture to, you know, that's there that's not in the the frame story of the grandfather and the grandson that, so you have a little, a very subtle visual difference that like, okay, you're, you're in fantasy world now. Yeah. And now it you're almost, back in reality. It almost works as like, it, in my head, those watercolor pictures that were used in, in a lot of fairy tale books. Yes. You know, where yes. it's like kind of kind of faded edges and things like that like it, yeah it, it represents the same yeah it's so uh you know it's so in a way to me like this is one of rob reiner's most visual movies because of that because he doesn't i mean you know his other movies don't really require it either um whether the dramas or comedies or whatever but it's just he doesn't make a big visual move like that like i feel like you have here and it's very subtle but i feel like it's distinct i feel like he uses that same trick in stand by me uh, uh yeah i guess which yeah I, yeah stand which by, i also yep. just rewatched, and and the the book ends with your favorite ricky dreyfus um are ricky. more crisp and then and then the kid's story is is again kind of more that um soft edge yeah kind of look. yeah i think you're probably right i haven't seen that in a while but uh i i can i think i recall that yeah stand by me great film too uh I, yeah we'll talk more about it in a second i think even with uh richard dreyfus <laughs> ricky d um all right well let's you know since we brought him up let's talk about rob reiner who's uh had such an amazing career really the man has made some incredible films that I feel like when you talk about America's, at least in our lifetime, top directors, you know, you you talk about Spielberg, you talk about Scorsese, you know, I don't think Rob Reiner really gets brought up to that level um, like the others. And, but maybe he should, because when you look at his body of work, especially the first, I think 10 of his first 11 movies, like, everything he directs up through the American president, except maybe North are like big wins, big, creatively interesting. Uh, yeah. I mean, some of those movies are huge, important yeah. movies culturally. And I just, I don't think he gets the credit for those that, that I think he deserves. 
I agree. I mean, I think he's super strong out of the gate. Uh, obviously, I, I feel like there's a pretty significant drop past American president. There is, you know, and yeah. I don't, I don't know that he's ever really been able to recapture um, a lot of the magic that he had in that early, early run. But mm-hmm. I mean, those early movies. I mean, we already mentioned Stand by Me, which for me, honestly, might be my my favorite of his movies. But Spinal Tap is the one that probably most people would gush over, uh, you know, uh, I mean, along with things like The Princess Bride. But I mean, When Harry Met Sally, huge, arguably the best romantic comedy, you know, like it's on every list. Misery Mm -hmm. is fantastic. Few Good Men, you know, all of those are maybe not maybe they don't have the staying power of, of, of some of the others, but like a few good men when it came out was a massive success, Yeah, you know, and, and misery is the same. Like, well, they're, and they're... I would argue that some of them do, I think spinal tap, I think stand by mm-hmm. me, princess bride, yeah, yeah. when Harry met Sally misery, for sure. All, all of those have legs and modern audiences can still, yeah, I think when when Harry Met Sally is one that still has a huge impact, but it's also like if you have a hard time with the Billy Crystal of it, and you know he's sure. so. Uh, I mean, yeah, I think but- I think you're right. I think they have staying power. I guess what I'm saying is like, if if you go back and rewatch any one of those, you're going to be entertained, and they're going to be good movies. And you're not going to feel like you wasted your time. Right. I think today, there's probably only a couple that people like that would come up in conversation like kind of naturally. And, you know, maybe I have a bias because, you know, I hang in film circles or whatever, but like, I think Spinal Tap comes up pretty regularly. Yep. I think, I think Princess Bride comes up regularly. I think When Harry Met Sally comes up regularly. Like those three. I know, throw, I, I agree. I would throw misery in there too. That, that, that's, um you know, there's an, there's at least one iconic scene in that movie and really in all these movies that still come up. So, yeah. Yeah. I would put that. I I think that people talk about it. I put it like kind of maybe a tier, just a tier lower, but, but I mean, absolutely. If you get talking about Rob Reiner or you talk about, you know, Kathy Bates or you're talking, you know, I mean, uh, James Caan, you know, like you're gonna, that movie comes up because they're, they carry it and that scene is yeah freaking devastating yeah it's worse it's worse than the book but nonetheless you know those movies people whether you know people are still talking about them i don't know that anybody really i mean i guess the bucket list comes up occasionally Ooh. but that's now just because i'm old and not, I, not a lot I gotta, of not gotta be checking shit of, off that list <laughs> not a lot of alex and emma talk these days no, you know, so, um, I mean, I hear the new Al Brooks, uh, defending my life documentary is pretty good, which, which is it the is. latest thing that, that Reiner did, but yeah. The documentary is really good. And it's part of it is about his friendship with Albert Brooks. And, uh, you know, when, when we did our broadcast news episode, which you can listen to in the archives at reconsideration.com. Uh, after that, I went down an Albert Brooks uh, hole and and really, really rediscovered his work and fell in love with him. And that documentary is a good guide going through his life and his career. But Rob Reiner is the director and also kind of the anchor point of it. So, but 
Rob Reiner was really like, he's really set up for success from life. Like coming into the world as the son of Carl Reiner, who's one of the top TV writers and, you know, off the Dick Van Dyke show and, uh, you know, had just a legendary career. And then coming, Rob coming up as an actor and coming into All in the Family, which is, you know, historically one of the top television shows of all time and working with great talent along the way and being mentored by people like Norman Lear, all of that kind of, and, and crossing paths with people like Albert Brooks and becoming friends with this, this group of comedians, comic actors, writers that are all coming up through this 1970s kind of leads him to this brilliant career in, as a director in the 1980s and being able to work with uh, Christopher Guest and Harry Shearer and Michael McKeon on Spinal Tap, which is 100% a, a movie we're going to cover. Um, that yeah. uh, is is an incredible film, and that just starts. That's just the beginning for him. And then you know, even the Sure Thing is not a movie that a lot of people talk about, but it's it's an 80s John Cusack comes out you know film that comes out right around Better Off Dead. So if you're a fan of and and we've we, we've talked about John Cusack uh, quite a number of times here on the show. I love John Cusack. Brent loves Cusack. We know that. I do. Um, the sure thing is definitely one you should check out. It's not a flawless film, um, mm. and it definitely feels like you know it's Rob's first. Spinal Tap is a is a fake documentary, um, so it's a particular style, and this is his first feature as a you know as a traditional. Uh, story so you know I think he's still like learning his way a little bit but um, certainly after that Stand By Me is a, is an excellent film and then that leads to The Princess Bride so he's really on quite a upward momentum yeah so this is his fourth film out of 21 films uh, as of 2024 so and as we are recording this it's uh, announced that the Spinal Tap sequel is about to start shooting. So, oh boy, great! <laughs> David's excited. I'm, I'm, I'm a huge Spinal Tap fan, a huge Christopher Guest fan. You know, we talked about it in our Waiting for Guffman episode, but I'm a little nervous about that. They've actually done follow-ups to Spinal Tap before. There was a movie in 1994. I think it was called The Return of Spinal Tap. Mm -hmm. That. Uh, came and went and did not receive the, you know, the release that the first one did or the praise. It was very quietly done. I think it's I think it's cool that you know these old guys can just come together and hang out with each other and do and make a movie like you know whatever they're gonna have fun. They yeah. I don't. They don't care if it's gonna be a like a box office hit. <laughs> they're just gonna have fun making being funny together and like. Yeah, uh, take those victory laps. <laughs> do, yeah, do and I, I think it will be a box office hit, even if it's not a great film, because on name yeah. value alone, it's been a little while since we've seen a Christopher Guest movie, and he he has said he's not making them those fake documentaries anymore. So, um, and and I'm sure their age is is going to be the main point of the story that they're yeah, however old they are, and they're still touring. You know, like a not as successful version of the Rolling Stones. Right, 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 right. Yeah, there's so, so. there's so much you can mine from it and yeah, they're just going to have fun. So yeah. that's cool. I mean, it's like what Adam Sandler does now. He just has fun making movies with his friends and yeah, 
a studio will pay for it. So why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you just do whatever? Like, yeah, and <laughs> I think people have been asking for it for. I mean, when I was in, when we were in college, I remember it coming up that yeah. that they should be doing a sequel. When the DVD came out, it was like, why are, why isn't there another Spinal Tap movie? It'd be so funny. Mm -hmm. So that was, you know, I would say that wasn't last year when that happened. Right, right, right. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I won't, I won't put a year on it, but. <laughs> Um, all right, so let's talk about kind of how this movie came to be and the development of it. Uh, this was written as uh, the novel was actually written by William Goldman, who was one of the top screenwriters uh, throughout the 1970s. He got huge after Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid came out. That was, you know, his first real huge win but he also writes all the president's men and, you know, a number of great, great films in the, in the seventies and is, uh, but also wrote novels as well. So he wrote the, the book version and he titled it because he wrote it for his two daughters and one wanted a story about a princess. The other wanted a story about a bride. So he <laughs> said, there you go. Put the those together. Bride. Princess bride. Boom. <laughs> but the, uh, have you guys read the novel? Have no. It's and a lot, it's very similar, but there's also parts that are extremely different from the movie. So, and he's gone in and tinkered with it, like George Lucas tinkers with Star Wars every every year. William mm -hmm. Goldwyn, bef before his passing, went in and kept you know making little adjustments to the book. So mm -hmm. there's uh, there's a different frame story that you know mm -hmm. in the in the book he's remembering his grandfather reading this book called the princess bride to him and it's about his search for that book that author like he william goldman is like the the main character here who's searching for that author so he can find the book and you know maybe write it into a, a movie so uh -huh. he like it's very self-referential, very meta, talking about Hollywood, talking about like how he wrote Butch Cassidy, you know, all that's part of the story. And he's a very like, um, you know, sexist guy. He's kind of a jerk uh, the way he's written that character. And, um, and he's trying to, you know, read this book to his son who has no interest in it at all. And he's like, like he calls us on a jerk, and like there's, like it's it's a totally different frame, setup for it. But then the once you get into the story, then he goes into the story like we do in the movie, and that's pretty much what we have in the movie. It just like any novel, it, it's a lot more detail. Like you get a lot more detail about Inigo's backstory and his father and what happened there and how his father was killed, and you know the torture scene is much more elaborate for Wes for uh, Wesley. So there's just some of that, but that's normal differences between a book and a, and a screenplay. So, but um, he writes the screenplay in 1973 and, uh, wow. and was shopping it around. And over the next like 14 years, there's four different studios that buy the options, can't figure out how to do it and release the rights. So it's bouncing around for quite some time. Goldman gets so frustrated um, by by this point that he actually buys the rights uh, in, I want to say like 1982, 1983, somewhere around that zone. And um, so he's the owner of it and he is in charge of his fate. So 
he had actually approached Carl Reiner uh, somewhere in the 70s to, to be the director for this film. And that's actually where Rob Reiner discovered the book. That, hmm. So that, that connection was made like 10 years prior. Um, you know, Carl Reiner didn't end up making it and I, I think made a, a ton of Steve Mar early Steve Martin movies instead. But, uh, but Rob like loved it and knew that, you know, if it was still around when he got to where he wanted to go, that, that this was a movie he wanted to come back to. Yeah, and, uh, and he turned around to his friend, Norman Lear, who helped bring in the financing and helped get the movie uh, produced. It was, it's a movie that was uh, released by MGM, but I think it was pretty much made as almost like an independent film. So hmm. um, they were in charge of the distribution. So yeah, so it was a really, well, go ahead, David. Yeah, they got it, I guess they got to, you get to do whatever you wanted with this, get to have a little fun. Like this is a great story to like, like I'm glad he got exposed to it. Like, and, and it's like, he's, that's definitely one of the, the first movies he wanted to make and it. It's got all, it's got all that elements. It's such, it's such a, it's a four quadrant film. It's a lot of fun. It's just going to the movies and everyone can have a good time with it. And you got to appreciate that. Cause it's not like he's like, I want to make an adventure film or, a straight comedy or anything like that. Like you don't even know the movie's funny until 15 minutes in other than like, you know, uh, uh, the framing story, has, you know, has got some whimsy to it, but it's not like you wouldn't necessarily know it's a comedy until you start piecing all these like disparate elements together. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. With, like you, with, you need with, to see it any... play out. Like, yeah. Yeah. I think you need the three bandits. Once, once the three bandits come in, that's when, that's when the comedy for me, at least for me starts really ramping up. Yeah. yeah. But I, it's fast. The movie's, the movie's fast paced. So it's not, I, I think as a kid, I felt like it took a little bit longer to get to the, to uh, the, the three bandits, but um, yeah. watching it now, it's like, no, they, they get there very quickly. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't take any like, time. Yeah. I mean, we, we just started off with the frame story. We meet Fred Savage and he's got, I always thought it was really cool that he had all real toys. That's what I like about E.T. and this, one of the things, yeah. that little detail of like, these are real, there's real toys behind him. There's Star Wars toys, there's mm -hmm. Captain America. Like if you look, they're not generic fake toys that you see in a lot of movies who, uh, you know, maybe they just skirted around the licensing of all that. But there's also, there's, the mindset of, you know, we're not marketing this movie off of those things. So we are making sure. it realistic as it would exist in real life. Toys just sitting there. We're not saying Captain America is a part of this movie. So we're, we're trying to make money off Marvel without paying them. <laughs> you know? um, right. That's always such a clearance concern. But uh, but yeah, like th that, that made it feel real and made it feel legitimate. And obviously, he's playing like a real Nintendo game of the day and and uh, when you see generic things like that, it's always just a little bit like it's a little bit of a ding with me that mm. takes you out just a little bit, not enough to derail the movie or anything, but but it just loses a sense of realism that, that we do have here. And one small detail, uh, I don't know if you guys caught it, but in the background, you can see uh, Rob Reiner's baseball or not you know baseball style hat his hat from spinal tap marty debergy's hat is hanging on uh, like a uh, coat rack in the background uh, <laughs> no kidding 
Now, and that was the backstory on that was uh, when he approached Mark Knopfler from Dire Straits to do the music and the score. Knopfler was like, I will do it, but you have to. <laughs> like, my stipulation is that that hat's got to be in the movie somewhere. Huh. And then, then he did it. Then Rob Reiner did it. And Knopfler was like, oh, I was totally kidding. <laughs> <laughs> That's really funny. I did yeah. not pick up on that. I've never picked yeah. up on that. That's hilarious. I never did either. And then I heard the story and I saw it. And it, yep, it's sitting there. Now, kudos to the art department getting, you know, the, the framing story correct. It's, you know, it's a three-walled set pretty much, you know, yeah. just shot shot in over one day probably at a, It looks like a sitcom a set. You know? uh-huh. Yeah. And then, but getting all those details right matter it does matter like it's not it's and so then it's it's mirrors like a reality of a kid's bedroom so then when you go go to the fantasy world you know it's you can buy that it's the fantasy world and then it's a slow build because then it's just like the names of things are interesting and just Mm -hmm. starting to sound more like a big adventure and uh and it just it takes its time to get there uh or you know the right amount of times not like a slow thing but like it's just it builds and builds it's like oh this is just a big just crazy fun adventure like they're gonna and you're just rooting for the the two of them to get together and one of my my favorite parts like when like is after they beat all the bandits and then she tosses him down the hill and then she jumps off the hill after him and like that's that's when it's like okay everything that's when they get to let loose like yeah. It's pure comedy from here on out. I mean, even though all of that stuff leading up to it was funny, they get to be together and do the joke. I don't know. I just, I love that moment. <laughs> She's just my Wesley and she just tosses yeah. herself over. Yeah. And then just the oomph, ooh, ah, uh, and then just rolling and the cuts. <laughs> and huge the, hill. Yeah. yeah. Like it, it looks like it's 80 degrees, like just yeah. like the way it's shot. <laughs> it's yeah. just such a fun. That's your as you wish moment or one of them. So, yeah, yeah. What have I done? Ow. Ooh. 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 We've got Fred Savage kind of echoing a lot of our thoughts going into this movie of like, we're, we're hesitant about this love story business. And he's like literally saying our thoughts out loud. Um, but you can, you know, you're on board with him immediately. And then you go into the story and, and uh, how, uh, I think it's perfect casting with the two of them, with Carrie Elwes as Wesley and Robin Wright as, as Princess Buttercup. Yeah. They're, they're great together. Great blonde beautiful yeah in love like the, people the cover of a romance novel really mm-hmm. is is that that right. kind of look and and both were you know young fresh actors um that i think uh, carrie elwes had only been in well, i think one movie at this point and wow. uh, rob reiner and saw him and said that's the guy and he's wow. so good and he's he's played it a number of times like this kind of role between this and robin hood men in tights and you know, he's got that kind of swashbuckling and ener- Douglas Fairbanks kind of energy to him mm. that, uh, you know, I think you even see it in Hot Shots, which is an underrated movie and his performance in it is underrated that oh, yeah. he's got that, you know, that uh, presence. 
good old yeah. hot shots. I'm a I'm a fan of yeah, I'm a fan of like when Carrie always was showing up and things like that was that was always fun for me because it's like I he's it, for, yes for hot shots and men in, men in tights is one of the like just the funniest movies you know even though i mean it's been a while but i mean prince of thieves was such like a zeitgeisty movie and kind of persisted with the mu- with the soundtrack from that you know it's sort of persisted longer than the, a, a, some movies would and then just totally mel brooks taking taking that and just having fun with it and carrie always was like perfect like he can just he plays the he is like a, a Leslie Nielsen type, I think, in a lot mm-hmm. of ways. He can he plays things so straight, and he's just so aware of everything that goes on. Um, so yeah, just for him to yeah to be like early in his career with this one, and to he you know he knows he's good looking, and he knows and then he knows he's like he's this he's got the reputation of that pirate, but then he's also in love, and then he just the jokes and the charm between him and Manny Patinkin, for instance, like it's just their they work so well together like yeah, ah, yeah. it's just what a crew like it's a, it, so to carry a whole you know carry a majority of the movie on his shoulders is pretty impressive could you yeah, see though seems... oh go ahead brent i was just going to say there just seems to be such great chemistry across the entire cast you know at least yeah. at least of our heroines right like they all seem to they're believable. They they feed off each other and work off each other really well. Like it's, it, I, you used a good word, David. You, the charm. It's very charming, you know. And it's mm-hmm. it's just, you know, it, it. To say it's relatable is weird because it's a, a fantasy story. But like you want to root for all of them, and they mm-hmm. they like very quickly, you know, have you kind of on their side and believe their story. Like they want to work together. You want them to work together. Like Inigo Montoya's story is fantastic. You know, like he's obviously, you know, his revenge story is super compelling and, and a hilarious kind of through line throughout the entire thing. So yeah, it's, it's nice to, I think part of the reason it works so well is because you're not caught up in any of them being big stars, but they're all really great character actors who, who don't take away from the story by being bigger than the story. Right. Mm -hmm. And so it's uh, it's real easy to, to just sink your teeth in to, to what the narrative instead of, instead of all the other kind of flashy things that could happen in other movies. I'm going to throw out two other names and tell me what you think. Uh, for them as Wesley, Kevin Klein, Christopher mm. Reeve. I think Klein would could do it. The, now yeah, this Klein. is Kevin Klein, like you know, uh, he's he's done a few movies already, but he has not done Fish Called Wanda yet. So, yeah i I would be. In, I mean, I think the casting is perfect, but Klein mm-hmm. would be an interesting option. Uh, yeah. Not so much with Reeve, like. Well, I, yeah, and I think he was, he was so clearly established as Superman at that point. I, I would probably say almost typecast that uh, he probably would have loved a role like this, and I think he could have done a good job. But it would be hard not to see Superman. It'd be an uphill, you know? it'd be an uphill battle for sure. I mean, it would immediately, I would immediately be taken out of it as a, 
you know, from the Superman standpoint. You, you'd be climbing up that hill as an audience, like the one Wesley fell down. That's correct. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, well, like, yeah, the, I, they're right. all uh, basically this movie defines like these actors for me for a lot of a lot of these actors for me that I'm not. Yeah, I don't see them beyond like, any other numerous roles. Or, I don't see them beyond like the these particular roles even though they might have storied careers and you know lots of parts and you know so many projects but like they're almost this entire cast they're all if i think of them that cast member i think of them in this their role in this movie like first yeah you know yep i totally hear you i think it's a lot of their not to say their peak but this is just probably their most memorable role yeah i think i think it became it became something everyone got so many people of our generation just got so familiar with and, and, mm-hmm. and parts of it or the whole of it just gets embedded in your brain. I'm like, Oh, Mandy Patinkin's a serious actor. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, what are you talking about? That was about? a surprise. I remember <laughs> yeah. seeing, the next time I saw him after this was alien nation and he's under all that makeup. And I was like, oh, that's yeah. Inigo Montoya. Are you kidding me? <laughs> right. <laughs> Holy crap. Um, but uh, Robin Wright only got cast about a week before filming, and there was a lot of actresses that they went through. Um, Uma Thurman, Meg Ryan, Sean Young, Whoop- Whoopi Goldberg was on the list, uh, Courtney Cox, all those people auditioned for the part and you wow. know, would have maybe been interesting, but maybe not at the right time in their career. Uh, Robin Wright came on their radar and went to meet Reiner and Goldman at, at I think Rob Reiner's house. And he said, he opened the door and she's in this, you know, little sundress and her hair is, you know, glowing. And, and they're like, that's it. That's her. That's Buttercup right there. <laughs> that's, the, that's the one. Um, yeah. And I think, she, you know, same thing as, as Carrie was just fit perfectly. And, you know, they, they look right together. They're, you know, the similar age wise, so there's not that like kind of age discrepancy that you do see mm-hmm. sometimes. And, you know, I, I think even in, in, uh, when Harry met Sally, like the actual age difference between Meg Ryan and Billy Crystal is more significant than you think. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and clearly Meg Ryan would come back on, uh, would, would stick with Rob Reiner, uh, mm-hmm. for, for that film. And, and he saw something in her, but maybe not the right part for this one. Yeah, um, just just a perfect cast, everybody. Yep. Very I'm looking at it. I'm just, just, just staring at it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it is. It it really is. Like, he's just as swashbuckling as as Carrie Elwes is, but he's got that different edge, and he's clearly got the bat- an ego's backstory of wanting revenge for the death of his father that you don't see immediately. When we meet the three bandits, that they're just, you know, at first they're just three kind of, interesting bandits and it takes a minute before you start to break the surface and in the book they go into Fezzik's background much more i mean they don't really go into it at all in the in the film so there's Mm. more to his character but you know there's no way you're not looking at those three i mean they they couldn't look more different from each other between (laughs) um wallace sean and and mandy patinkin and andre the giant such a ragtag group what a group. <laughs> but Vicini, he can fuss. Fuss, fuss. Then you like to scream at us. 
Probably he means no harm. He's very, very short on charm. You have a great gift for Ryan. Yes, yes. Sorry, that. Enough of that! Fuzzy, are there rocks ahead? If they are, we all be dead. No more rhymes now, I mean it! Anybody want to feel it? Yeah, Andre was, was, I mean, such an immense figure in more ways than one. And he's coming, when they're shooting this, it's sort of the end of 1986. So he had taken a hiatus from wrestling. I know all this because I'm a, a massive wrestling fan, especially at the time. And uh, he was, but he was in physically really deteriorating condition that his, uh, you know, his, his, physical condition with with the ailments that he had that he was just he was gaining a lot of weight like he had gained a hundred pounds in like almost a year and a half prior to this so it was much harder to move around a lot of problems with his knees a lot of problems with his back but obviously a look that you can't you know uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger could have played it but it wasn't you don't have the height you don't have the you know it's a different look so yeah. And he had problems, you know, he drank, he had to drink a lot to keep his pain under control. I mean, he would drink bottles of wine, mm -hmm. bottles of wine a, a day, like massive amounts. There's famous stories about it that yeah. um, they had to, there's certain shots where like they had to build ramps for him to walk on. So it's easier where, you know, the shot where he catches buttercup, you know, jumping out the window, all that he had to be completely supported or there's, you know, very crafty cinematography going on that, um, you know, he wasn't able to, to do some of that work that he normally would have. And, and this, when the movie releases, this is his like, you know, he's really at his peak because the showdown with Hulk Hogan at WrestleMania three happens earlier in 1987, which is where we were talking about earlier that, that crossover into pop culture that, you know, that visual of, there's a famous shot of like Hogan and Andre like face to face and the size difference. And it's just, it's a good image that that was out there everywhere at this time. Yeah. So definitely capitalizing on his popularity and these Fezzik is such a sweet character that how could like, how could Fezzik fall in with Wallace Shawn here? <laughs> you know, He's such like a lovable character that, you know, it's hard to believe, like once you, once you start to get to know them, like God, Inigo and Fezzik are just like the nicest guys. Why are they running with this guy? Who's a complete jerk. Yeah. Like, well, like, you know, they're just mercs for hire or whatever. Right. So yeah, that's like, that's the thing I would have loved a, a little bit of just let's Fezzik steal. Like, you know, you could have talked about anything. I don't know anything. I'm curious to read the book just to see like, mm -hmm. what was his, but like you know, because like he ends up on the brute squad, so he's just uh, later in the movie, so he's just a he's just a heavy hand uh, for hire. Um, but he has some morals. He doesn't like killing. Um, yeah. he's like he told Fezzik, like you didn't tell me they would be killing people. Like, uh, so yeah, there's like a love lovability to him, and and Anigo too is just just a totally honorable uh, fighter. Like you know, just. Uh, allowing wesley to come up and rest and the chat and yeah there, there's an know honor, each other a little yeah. yeah there's an honor among these like elite fighters yeah uh and then they have like such a great battle together uh so yeah like all these characters were uh given like 
like a little something extra. Yeah. And Fezzik's, I think Fezzik is probably the one like I wish I saw a little bit more, but he's funny and he rhymes and he's just a helpful. <laughs> he does. He rhymes. Helpful big ope. <laughs> yeah. David, you like your rhyming. If there's anything I know about you and people, you like people I, that rhyme. I you got to like rhyme. Rhyming. You got to rhyme. Absolutely. Um, Wallace Shawn is probably my favorite character in the movie, honestly. Like he is so fantastic as Vizzini and uh, I think every d- piece of dialogue that he has is memorable and um, I-, I think a role that he's never fully escaped either but the uh, the I guess the fight scenes you'd say once once they kidnap uh, Buttercup and they're off and the Dread Pirate Roberts shows back up conveniently and uh, the great shots climbing the cliffs of uh, the cliffs of insanity. <laughs> That's like mm-hmm. clearly like stunt people versus you know yeah. the you know professional climbers and wardrobe versus the close up of the actors on a stage. So um, you mean Andre yeah, the that, Giant didn't drag four people up the up the mountain? Believe it or not, he could have. Um, yeah, I just love that chase, the the kind of energy level of, of you know, are they getting away? Because Dread Pirate Roberts is catching up, like, very quickly to them. Like, he's so much <laughs> yeah, faster than the three of them. So much faster. And the uh, the fight sequence, the first fight sequence, which was, is, you know, said as the second greatest fight in, in history, or sword <laughs> fight in history, is... Uh, it's a lot of work, you know, it's like they put a lot of pressure on themselves to really have a believable sword fight with, of course, some flamboyance to it with the flips and, you know, that oh, yeah. they work in. But, some, uh, some gymnastics. Yeah. And, and and ego, like it's a great way to work in because that's where I think they start to work in an ego's backstory, right? They're oh, like of course. Talking, yeah. They're talking the entire time they're fighting. Because he asks, he says, do you have, <laughs> do you mind if I ask you a question? Do you have? Yeah. Six fingers. I do not mean to pry, but you don't by any chance happen to have six fingers on your right hand. Do you always begin conversations this way? My father was slaughtered by a six-fingered man. Was a great sword maker, my father. When the six-fingered man appeared and requested a special sword, my father took the job. He slept a year before he was done. I've never seen its equal. Six-fingered man returned and demanded it. But at one-tenth his promised price, my father refused. Without a word, the six-fingered man slashed him through the heart. I love my father. So naturally, I challenge his murderer to a duel. I fail. Six-fingered man lived me alive. But he gave me this. How old were you? I was 11 years old. When I was strong enough, I dedicated my life to the study of fencing. So the next time we meet, I will not fail. I will go up to the six-fingered man and say, hello. 
My name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. Uh, but that's that's funny. Like as they're fighting, they're like also bonding and connecting and getting respect for each other. Right. And he doesn't. And then the Wesley like doesn't end up killing him, which I think normally he would. He just knocks him out. And well, he doesn't kill anybody. I mean, except right. for except except. I mean, I guess technically, Benzini kills, kills himself. Yeah. So. Yeah. He outsmarts him into killing himself, but but before right. that, like the the fight with when he moves Wesley moves on and he takes on uh, Fezzik, it's like it's the same thing. It's like more just getting respect and getting to know each other as they're fighting, and then he just yeah. knocks him out with a sleeper. Yeah, but the uh, the poison showdown with Vizzini is just a masterpiece of a scene. I mean, like that's that to me that's an iconic scene. It is great. The back and forth between the two of them and Vizzini like outsmarting himself like 10 times over, you know? Yeah. yeah. Where is the poison? The battle of wits has begun. It ends when you decide and we both drink and find out who is right and who is dead. But it's so simple. All I have to do is divine from what I know of you are you the sort of man who would put the poison into his own goblet or his enemies? Now, a clever man would put the poison into his own goblet because he would know that only a great fool would reach for what he was given. I'm not a great fool, so I can clearly not choose the wine in front of you. But you must have known I was not a great fool. You would have counted on it, so I can clearly not choose the wine in front of me. You've made your decision then? <laughs> not remotely, because Iocane comes from Australia, as everyone knows. And Australia is entirely peopled with criminals. And criminals are used to having people not trust them as you are not trusted by me, so I can clearly not choose the wine in front of you. Truly, you have a dizzying intellect. Wait till I get going! Where was I? Australia. Yes, Australia. And you must have suspected I would have known the powder's origin, so I can clearly not choose the wine in front of me. You're just stalling now. You'd like to think that, wouldn't you? You've beaten my giant, which means you're exceptionally strong. So you could have put the poison in your own goblet, trusting on your strength to save you. So I can clearly not choose the wine in front of you. But you've also bested my Spaniard, which means you must have studied. And in studying, you must have learned that man is mortal. So you would have put the poison as far from yourself as possible. So I can clearly not choose the wine in front of me. You're trying to trick me into giving away something. It won't work. It has worked! You've given everything away! I know where the poison is! Then make your choice. I will! And I choose... What in the world can that be? What? Where? You only think I guessed wrong! That's what's so funny! I switched glasses when your back was turned! Ha-ha, <laughs> you fool! You fell victim to one of the classic blunders! The most famous is never get involved in a land war in Asia, but only slightly less well-known is this. Never go in against a Sicilian when death is on the line. <laughs> it's, I, you know, I don't think I've ever seen, or we've never seen a scene like that or a character like that, uh, you know, to no. date. So I feel, I feel like at this point now it's been, it's been, you know, mimicked over and over again. But yeah, it was nice to see this at the time as kind yeah. of the first pass. I wonder if it really is the first pass, but it's so great. Yeah. I, I mean, I'd love to see like 
what other things they had going on during that scene you know what other mm -hmm. like what other because I, I feel like there's ideas. probably some improv happening some other like ideas Gotta be, right? what yeah yeah um that's yeah. a scene that probably in post got really shaped to the perfect scene that it is yeah it's great um but yeah and it's important that to keep it like you were saying that that wesley doesn't kill anybody um even if he had killed vizzini it's sort of understandable because vizzini is a villain he um, is the real bad guy yeah he really is he's the, like, he's the mastermind in yeah, air quotes yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. so uh you could understand it but at this point we're, we're keeping you know we're keeping Wesley, even separate from the Dread Pirate Roberts, who has this reputation of being this brutal killer on the seas, mm -hmm. that we see, like, well, we know as an audience, it's Wesley, that um, Wesley didn't take on that part of Dread Pirate Roberts. He took on the persona, but not the actual killer attitude. So, yeah, now it's just the persona. People will just turn over their loot because they're yeah. afraid for their life. It's a character. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Which is also Which part explained. of that backstory. Yeah. Yeah. It gets explained. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. And then we have our the scene we mentioned falling down the hill and, and that's where Buttercup realizes that Dread Pirate Roberts is Wesley and she, you know, pushes him down the hill and he's saying, as you wish, as he tumbles down, then she realizes it's him, you know, her, her beautiful Wesley that she thought was long dead, that she dives down the hill after him. And that's a, um, and then we get to our, our next characters, the rodents of unusual size. The yeah. Rus? <laughs> yeah. The R-O-U-S's? The R-O-U-S's. <laughs> I like That's... the practical puppet costume and, you know. Yeah. Just that the... almost feels like Muppet, like a Jim Henson kind of costume, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, like, definitely. it definitely feels like it. Like that. I've got the, uh, what do you call it, never-ending story vibe because it's, uh, yeah. you know, swampy and, and otherworldly creature, but it definitely looks like a puppet. But you just buy into it <laughs> like yeah and it's scary enough on its own and uh yeah that's a those were there's just those little subtle things they're not like there's these little jokes throughout the whole movie that it's not yeah. it's only it's only so much of it is played for toward the audience like hey we're making jokes here get ready to laugh like it's it's very it's not like that at all in this film mm -hmm. it's just it's just this little extra uh layer that that makes it so whimsical and and just fun like you can can just you just kind of relax and go with the story you don't have to yeah, yeah. like wait where where are these rats coming from why would they live in a swamp fire <laughs> yeah. swamp what's a fire you just swamp? believe it you just believe it yeah and lightning sand is such a great concept you know instead of yeah like, <laughs> um, yeah quicksand quicksand it's yeah. lightning sand so you just sink to the bottom immediately. Just, like yeah. immediately you're down yeah <laughs> um what a great scene and, and i love that name rodents have like the, you just the, that's just what they are they're yeah. they're large yeah. rodents. it's very on the nose yeah <laughs> it's like i don't um, think they exist and then just off screen one jumps in, into <laughs> into frame on the, yeah like <laughs> he said they're a myth boom and uh yeah anyway sorry just just and, reliving the our favorite moments <laughs> yeah yeah and then they walk right into the hands of our our real villains of the movie, played by Chris Sarandon and Christopher Guest, who are also, you know, important characters, not as spoken about as as the rest of the cast, but they're, I mean, Chris Sarandon is such a great 
like prince like evil prince oh yeah oh, yeah he's uh, uh he's he's got it he's definitely got it down to that stereotypical t you know like yeah. where it's it's like okay that's all i needed though guy. i you forgot know. chris guest was in this to be honest like i i when i think of of him um this is not the character you know like i just forget that he's the six-fingered man yeah. And it's always a pleasant surprise when we get to it. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that's Chris Guest. That's great. Yeah. Well, he's playing it so straight. And you rarely see Christopher Guest right. play straight characters like that without some kind of there's really no comedy other than that. He's the six fingered man. And, you know, as soon as you see that, you know, OK, an ego is going to catch up and meet up with him at some point here. Yeah. And and that's I, that's probably where the comedy comes in for me is like you know, yeah. running down the hall and running yeah. away from. You know, and then the quickly turns. Yeah, yeah and, mm-hmm. and then quickly turns to to the duel. But yeah, I I always love being reminded that he's that he's in it. Yeah, it's uh, you know, it's not the typical Christopher Guest, but he's he's great in it. And that yeah, that that the scene at the end, that the the showdown between Anigo and the Six Fingered Man is uh, is really fun. That Anigo is sort of getting it you know, is sort of on the losing end, but then his heart and his passion, right. you know, just motivates him to like, almost like a Rocky, like comeback and uh, a bit and kill him. So, <laughs> and where I just that moment where they're trying to make a deal, you know, he's the six fingered man's trying to make a deal with him, like, as mm-hmm. he knows he's going to lose. So uh great, great moment for uh, an ego, but yeah. So, uh, and, and Christopher Guest and has that long career with Rob Reiner. So they, the kind of cross paths early on their careers, Spinal Tap, obviously the big connection, but Castle Rock Entertainment, which is Rob Reiner's company produces, I think all of Christopher Guest's feature films. So, you know, that relationship kept going. And I think uh, Christopher Guest pops up in, other Rob Reiner movies, like he's in a few good men as like a forensic, you know, analysis. Like he goes on trial, he's in the trial for like a minute. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's a, it's a friendship that would keep going. So, uh, yeah. And, and, you know, the, the whole time, obviously we, our characters have separated here that Buttercup and Wesley are now uh, kind of imprisoned by um, what Prince Humperdinck, right? And Wesley is is taken to the pit of despair, where he is. <laughs> the torturing of him is horrifying and hilarious at the same time. Yeah, a suction cup <laughs> life stealer, a, a life <laughs> sucker. It sucks sucker. the life out of him. Yeah, yeah. And Which you is see it perfect. Like, yeah. Because it's uh, it's not magic. It's like but we'd expect it. Like it is this like fantasy machine, since like yeah. the only machines they have are you know are fulcrums and levers and pulleys and and yeah. the wheel. It's, like, got a, so, it's, a, it's a hydro kind of operated machine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so it's got that extra level of of fantasy without it being too like. There's no magic in the fantasy world. It doesn't it doesn't matter. But it's uh it's almost magic. It's it's yeah. this, it's that science looking like magic kind of thing. Yeah. And they torture him to to death, really. I mean, it's actually kind of messed up what they they suck the life out of him and and you know, they turn it all the way up to like as high as it goes and 
you can well, like humper dick wants and... to kill him yeah like yeah. He, it's his revenge he wants to kill him in front of in front of buttercup because even um let's face uh Chris, uh, Rugen, Christopher Desk's character, he's he's like a scientist or something. He's experimenting with torture and he wants to right. take copious notes. And yeah, like, he wants don't to turn hear the to... feedback, right? He's... Yeah, yeah. He's like, just How do you be feel? honest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, I mean, you know, even he doesn't want him to turn it up to 50, 50 years. Yeah. Right. Uh, well, he goes into a jealous rage after Buttercup kind of basically says that to Humperdinck that he'll never be as as good a man as as wesley was right because there's this whole kind of sub subplot going on where he's pretending to be sending messengers out to try and find wesley to bring him back to see if he'll marry buttercup but Mm -hmm. that's not really what's happening he's taken to torture him yeah uh and while this is all going on, we we have Fezzik and Inigo who kind of meet back up with each other and are kind of the worst for wear and uh, cross paths and and set out to find Buttercup, right? And and Wesley and continue their own mission as well. Right. Um, I got the I got the sense that Inigo and um, uh, what's under the Fezzik? Fezzik. Yep that they're kind of companions just in general. Uh, like they, you know, they kind of always meet up and the, are working together. And then um, Zini is like, he just, he happened to hire them maybe. Like, I, yeah. I, don't, I don't know if they had worked together before, but they, those two seem to be kind of, kind of a team, a team. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and they eventually find Wesley and and kind of take his body, and then they come to Miracle Max, which is uh, played Billy. by Billy Crystal, and we get Billy. Carol Kane in here as Max's wife. <laughs> what like a energetic scene with the two of them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. True love, you heard him. You could not ask for a more noble cause than that. Yes, honey. True love is the greatest thing in the world. Except for a nice MLT, mutton, lettuce, and tomato sandwich when the mutton is nice and lean and the tomatoes are ripe. They're so perky. I love that. But that's not what he said. He distinctly said, to blave. And as we all know, to blave means to bluff. Huh? So you're probably playing cards, and he cheated. Liar! 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 Get back, witch! I'm not a witch. I'm your wife. But after what you just said, I'm not even sure I want to be dead anymore. You never had it so good. He's so Billy Crystal. You never had it so good. <laughs> just, just so many every. Yeah, it's all jokes. It's all funny. It's wonderful. Yeah. It's a nice. Basically playing like an old Jewish couple. Uh, yeah, <laughs> under heavy, heavy makeup. <laughs> yeah, you wouldn't. You'd never know it was them. It doesn't yeah. look like Billy Crystal at all. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think the first time yeah. I saw it too, like I just seen Throw Mama from a Train. I think, um, <laughs> and I was like, wait, that's like I. Certain things just blew my mind. It's like right, that right. guy's Billy Crystal. <laughs> <sighs> um, but yeah, it's such a, a very like intense, you know, couple of characters that come in, but they, you know, they help revive uh, Wesley and and bring him back to uh, back to life. And and then after that, it's really just you know they, they they're going to storm the castle and rescue Buttercup and hopefully kill Humperdinck and. Um, 
Wesley, uh, Carrie Elwes's physical comedy for the rest of the movie is incredible. That, mm-hmm. you know, Wesley is very slowly coming back to life and really doesn't have con- control of his body yet. So little by little, like, oh, now he can blink. Now he can talk, you know, now he right. can move like his right arm and that's it. So he's headed yeah. directly into this showdown that he's going to have to duel with with Humperdinck. Yeah, it's kind of an interesting play on like the ticking clock, right? Like it's kind of like a reverse, like, you know, he's going to eventually get feeling back, but you don't know if it's going to be in time to take on Humperdinck. And so, which is great because that plays into that scene where they, where they do finally come face to face. Yeah, totally. It's uh, it, it's it's really smartly done the way they story-wise how the characters are split up and divided into their own. I guess Fezzik's kind of just more like floating around, but you know he's doing the physical tasks that need to be done to like break into the castle and the um, the cloak that he wears the that they set on fire. <laughs> yeah, the Holocaust cloak. He just happens to have like yeah. It yeah, fit. Just, so like in his back pocket. Have it. Yeah. Well, he grabbed it. I think he said he grabbed it from Miracle Max's. Maybe there was somewhere that he picked yeah. it up. That yeah. You know. I just like that. It's like you know, it's that magical animation pocket where it's like, yeah. you know, the character needs something, so they just reach behind themselves and they're like, "Bing, here it is. Yeah. I have it." Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you know, we we get all we get split up where Fezzik's kind of doing the the physical roles, and Ego is off on his journey fighting the six fingered man and getting and gaining his revenge. Uh, and Wesley is, you know, par- not, I don't know, paralyzed is not the right word, but you know, but whether his body is functioning or not, he has found his way to Humperdinck and has that great back and forth whether or not he's bluffing about whether he can duel or not. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> And he has just enough energy to stand up and point and prove that he can fight. And then Humperdinck falls for it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, uh, it's it's just so well done between between all of them. And and it's a great payoffs for all of our all of our characters. And um yeah. you know, and it's the it is, it's the it's the ultimate like happy ending here for the, the story that everyone ends where you as an audience really want them to end. And what's great is along the way, we're intercutting with the grandfather and grandson. So we keep Mm -hmm. checking in. It's almost like Rob Reiner checking in with us. It's like, hey, are we good? We're still good with the story, right? Like, Mm -hmm. even though there's some romance and some kissing, like we're we're cool, right? We can keep going. Yeah. And and Fred Savage is just like us, like yeah, keep keep reading. I'm I'm good. <laughs> it's it's okay. Let's yeah. But you could read one more chapter. Yeah. Yeah, um, it's an awesome payoff. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, and and it's great, and it just you know ending with Mark Knopfler's great you know score uh, that's so fitting for the film. Um, it really is. I don't know, would you say the movie is a masterpiece? I mean, I think I I would. I don't know that there's anything that you can really knock it for, you know? I mean, like maybe you're not into fairy tales and fantasy. Okay, so it's not your cup of tea. But like from a storytelling standpoint, like it's it's pretty buttoned up. Yeah. 
Yeah, solid. I script. mean, yeah, it's like story wise, I don't think there's anything that needs to change. There's no the only thing that kind of stands out. It's very it's a very white cast, you know. So oh, today, yeah. I think you would probably change that aspect of it a little bit, but. Um, that's really yeah that doesn't affect the characters at all it doesn't affect the dialogue or any of the action that happens at in any way it's just you know just was kind of one of those things that it, it's part of being a product of its time yeah is there anything else that i feel like something stood out to me when i was watching it maybe in the billy crystal scene or there might be a couple of comments a, that you would yeah just comments that you yeah. probably would change but not anything like egregious that would you know it's it's not truly offensive, I don't think, but but I think yeah. would be would be maybe altered. And it's taking a you know a pretty old fashioned look at at women. You know, it's either the damsel in sure. distress, who's also a strong character and and can try to hold her own a little bit, but uh, or they're the nagging wife. So it's those are the two right. yeah. versions of women you get here. That that mm. that is sort of a problem. So, I mean, what if you yeah. made like an Inigo Montoya a, a woman today? Probably would be. It'd be Emma Stone, yeah. and it would. I would say, like in today, like in Dungeons and Drag, the Dungeons and Dragons movie, it's Michelle Rodriguez's character is sort of of that Inigo type, mm. right? Yeah, that seems current, but it's still. I, I think the movie still, you know, is really strong. It's entertaining. It's kind of wonderful to watch. It's funny. Um, I love seeing all of this cast together and. Andre the Giant, you know, it's, it's, I think this is one of the few film performances he'd done, definitely his biggest. So, um, you know, such a charming character here. Should we check out how it did at the box office with a little box office glory? Yes. Yes. The Princess Bride had a $16 million budget. It shot all over England and Ireland in late 1986. It opens up in limited release September 25th, 1987, and goes wide about two weeks later on October 9th. So October 9th, it lands at number three, opening up against Someone to Watch Over Me, Surrender, Three O'Clock High, and Baby Boom. Hmm. What a what a handful of movies there. Yeah. I, Three o'clock high and baby boom. I remember three o'clock high is probably the only one I've seen or would be interested to watch again. Uh, I don't even know what the first two. What were the first? Two Some, someone said? to watch over me is a Ridley Scott movie. I don't like know Tom Berenger. I, I want to say I haven't seen it in forever, but hmm. and surrender is one of those that I'm not remembering right now, but I'll look it up and remember it and be ashamed. I didn't recall it. So. Like, oh, yeah. <laughs> uh yeah, so it uh, it landed right between like father, like son, and someone to watch over me at number three. So I do uh, remember like five... father, like son. Oh yeah, well it's a uh, it's your favorite, Kirk Cameron, and Dudley, right? The world's favorite, Kirk Cameron. <laughs> and at the Dudley time, Moore. at yeah. the time, he was oh, yeah. pretty darn popular. Yes, yep. he, I saw that. that was that's in my grandma collection. I saw that with my grandma in the theater. Saw like father, like son, and vice versa with her in the theater. So we were into I the saw, body swap comedy. Yeah, yeah. I saw both those in the theater as well. <laughs> I don't know who I was with. I think like father, like son, I was actually with my father, but vice yeah. versa, I have no idea. Yeah. 
um, all right. So it, it took in $5 million its first week in wide release. Uh, it ended up with a $30.8 million domestic run, only about 200,000 internationally. So not a lot, a $31 million grand total, but, um, that's really like not where it found its success was not in theaters. So it got by, uh, was, I would say passable at best box office wise. Huh. It ends up as number 38 of 87, right between can't buy me love and Harry and the Hendersons. Ooh, Ooh. saw that one in the theater too. Yeah. Ooh. Mm-hmm. Uh, Top of the box office in 87, as we've mentioned uh, several times before, Three Men and a Baby, which you can listen to in the archives at reconsideration.com, Fatal Attraction, and Beverly Hills Cop 2. Now, look at that. That's just an example of like the kinds of movies that were made then versus now. You, you won't see, I guess maybe this year might be, uh, 2023 is an exception, but traditionally now you would not see non-franchise movies as your top two box office takes well this year's 2024 but yes Yes, but 23 we can fully look at 23's box office correct yeah um yeah but but really where it finds its legs is in video stores and this is why video stores were so important and the problem with streaming is you don't have these movies that will find a second life or very, very rarely. And it seems to happen more with TV shows, like whatever happened with suits last year, <laughs> um, that, you know, on video store and video stores, like things could catch fire. Word of mouth could spread, um, you know, as people together in stores talking about movies and comparing thoughts and notes. And it was a beautiful thing. And now when you're just scrolling through whatever image, uh, you know, the, the streaming network puts on there, like when I go through Netflix, like it's hard to even find older movies, you know, we'll see like one or two, but it's all just the Netflix stuff or brand new, new films. But if you're digging for something older, it's, it's harder to find it. You have to go to like, like HBO or uh, or max or whatever it is or criteria like those are things that promote older content as well mm-hmm. but uh i don't know like this was if this came out in a streaming era i don't know if it would have the success that it had because of video stores yeah it's interesting i mean the video stores when you see all the the vhs copies up on the wall and it's like it's a big display i don't know it's different than when i'm flipping through what's new on whatever streamer that I'm looking at, you know, mm-hmm. like it just doesn't catch me enough. Everything is so much more distra- distracting on the streamers. It I is. end up scrolling for hours just to find something that by the time it took me to find it, I could have watched something already. Like right. it's, I don't know. Exactly. So, uh, so uh, yay for physical media. So video yeah. stores, if you have any in your area, wherever you are, help them, support them, yeah, go in support there. Your local video store. Where do you guys rank this versus like Rob Reiner's other, we've talked about a lot about his other films and how, you know, important they were, especially in their time and how great films, uh, many of them are. Where does this one rank to you? Is this in the top three, four, five, top 10? What do you guys think? All uh, of the above. 
Yeah, I don't know. It's just, uh, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's definitely up there. It's, I don't know. It's part of his greatest hits. It's that that yeah. was always this would always be on the greatest hits album. For him. It might. I think it's in my top three. I mean, I, I think my favorite, which I mentioned earlier, is is Stand by Me for. Mm-hmm. I I don't know that one. I just really really enjoy. But um, but this is probably my second. I mean, it depends. I haven't seen Misery in a long time, but it's very good. But this one again is like. My, I guess my top three would be Stand By Me, Princess Bride, and actually, you know, when when Harry met Sally, if I was really like mm-hmm. put to it. But I, that's just based on which ones I've watched the most in my life. Yeah, yeah. I would say, you know, top my top Reiner films, I would put Spinal Tap, I, then Princess Bride, then Stand By Me, then probably Misery, then When Harry Met Sally, I think is my top, what is that, five? I think that's, I think that's my top five. And then, so, you know, then I would put probably Few Good Men and uh, uh, Sure Thing, American President after that. I might, yeah. I might be missing one in there. I feel wow. like I'm missing something. Yeah. My top North. five is probably North. pretty similar. I. I'm not as big a fan of the Spinal Tap as most people, uh, I think, who enjoy it are. But but uh, I I do recognize it for what it is and think it's it's great. And but I uh, it I missed it when it came out. I was confused by it because I was <laughs> I was I, I didn't understand sp- like mockumentaries at the time when it came out. And my first introduction to it actually, where I understood anything, was columbia house uh cds and Mm. i got the the i got the spinal tap music cd for whatever reason and listened to that and didn't really like the music so it's like so i was like uh i don't think i like it it took many many years later until Mm. i realized that it was all just a big joke and that the movie was a fake documentary and so I think that put me off of it because I was too dumb to understand what was actually going on. It was over my head. So, uh, yeah. so yeah, I missed the window. It's tough when you're five, six, seven years old. You don't <laughs> yeah, I, I, the, I, the deep comedy. Yeah, I didn't have a guide leading me uh, down down the road to explain what I was experiencing. So, yeah, I didn't get into Spinal Tap till we we hit college. You yeah, know, I, yeah, I was late on Guffman even, uh, and. And, uh, but we'll talk a lot about Spinal Tap when we cover that episode, because the, I have a lot to, a lot of thoughts about the genius of the lyrics and like how smart those lyrics are and deeply funny while at the same time, actually sounding like real music of the time period that they fooled people that they weren't a real band. Yeah. I'm looking forward to revisiting it because I'm hoping, I'm hoping now in older age, I'll have a different appreciation for it, but uh, yeah, I've only really seen it once and listened to the soundtrack a few dozen times, but it was just never. Even their second album, their second album, break, break like the wind is Uh it's, it's almost just as good. It's really, really solid. All right. Well, <laughs> to be continued, coming yeah, to a yeah. podcast near you very soon, I'm sure. But I think for Princess Bride, you know, if, if you haven't seen it in a long time, give it another shot. If you've got kids that are, you know, the right age, and I mean, like, probably seven, eight, you know, to anywhere older than that, just yeah. 
like definitely sit down and watch it together as a family. It's a great family film. It's wholesome. It's, you know, it, it just hits all the right notes and there's something in it for everybody. Yeah, like I like I was saying earlier, I just watched it with my 11-year-old and he does not like movies. It it's heartbreaking to me, but he enjoyed this one. I even asked. I was like, "Did you like it?" cuz he knew we were going to record today and yep. he said, "Yeah, it was good." Yeah. So, if if he's sold, I think anybody could be sold. <laughs> yeah, same, similar with mine that he does he into the gaming but struggles with movies but this was one that we we had it on and he laid down and made it through the whole movie so yeah <laughs> um and if you're looking for more about princess bride carrie l west put a book out uh i want to say within the last two years or so it's called as you wish inconceivable tales from the making of the princess bride so a, a whole book full of stories about how everything came together lots of there's a lot of Andre the Giant stories about what was going on behind the scenes there and kind of his escapades. So, which is always fascinating, especially if you haven't seen any of the documentaries on him. So uh, you can check that out. And like usual, you can, uh, oh, you know what? Before I, before I do our wrap out here, mm. we got to come back to six degrees of reconsidimation. Mm. Who's Absolutely. ready Who's ready to connect Commando, that great fairy tale film, uh, to this one, The Princess Bride? I'm I'm good. I could do it. I got, Go for I it. got I got something. It's garbage. Mine is garbage. Carrie L was was in Liar Liar with Jim Carrey, who is in Batman Forever with Chris O'Donnell, who is in Batman and Robin with Arnold Schwarzenegger, who is our lead in Commando. Oh, nice. See, that's good. See, yeah, you did it. I, I, I struggled because I was trying to connect Fred Savage to Alyssa Milano, who both at the time were huge child actors that I liked right. as a, as a kid. I loved Wonder Years. I loved Who's the Boss. Uh, I think my first, cr well, maybe my first crush was Punky Brewster's second crush was definitely Sam from Who's the Boss. Uh, so I, I tried to link it that way and I, and I struggled a little bit, but I got to, uh, uh, Fred Savage is in uh, gold member with Seth green. Seth green is in entourage, uh, which is a real cop out because entourage, everybody made it. Everybody's in there. Yeah. <laughs> so that's, that's where I failed miserably is I'm using entourage. I tried to work my way around it. It didn't happen. So I'm, I got entourage. Mark Wahlberg is also in Entourage. He is in Fear. Alyssa Milano is in Fear uh, with Mark Wahlberg and Reese Witherspoon. So uh, I got there. You got there. I struggled. Nice. I know well there's done. a million different ways that we could have done that. I don't necessarily love mine, but I, I gave myself an obstacle that, nice that, I, that, yeah, I, that, was, to, that I had to go that, through. That's a tough route, but you did it. Yeah. You um, think it wouldn't be. I was like, oh, dude, these guys, they're like child actors that they would have had to have been in something together at some point. They were not. I mean, because Alyssa Milano's career after who's the boss kind of took a dip until a little Charmed. bit later. Like she, yeah. she picked back up with charmed and, and things like that and really got back on, on the radar and, and all that Fred Savage similarly kind of like dipped after wizards wizard, the wizard. And then, it was, I think Austin Powers really kind of put him, yeah. he was doing a bunch of stuff back behind the scenes, but just as an actor and, 
and yeah. things like that. They both have been super busy. It's not like they've really struggled in their career, but, but, uh, from an, from a on, on-screen personality standpoint, I had a hard time finding them together. The, uh, the answer I was looking for oh, was now it's looking for. Okay. okay. <laughs> Andre, the giant is in Conan, the destroyer with Arnold mm-hmm. Schwarzenegger. Sure. That's if you want to take the easy way out, John. All there's so many journeys you can take to get easy there. Easy so way out. That's that's the fun of. Uh, I should have known it had something to do with Andre since it was <laughs> your pick. That's true. That was a lot of fun, and we'll have much more of that in our, our next uh, episodes. But uh, speaking of that, we've done romance this month. Next up, we have sports romance. And follow oh. the following that will be sports. We're all we're, we're relevant in the month of February. So well, I mean, come on, you gotta do a mix, right? Like, I mean, it's February. It's the yeah. It's the romance. It's the romance month. We're not gonna say what it is. We'll leave you. Uh, we'll dangle that carrot for you. But we'll. <laughs> You'd be surprised how few movies there are that have both sports and romance. Yeah. In this in the, in this regard. Not a deep category. So. Hmm. Uh, so stay tuned for that you can check out our archives at reconsidermation.com check us out on social media we're reconsidermation podcast uh, everywhere and uh, thank you to our friends EK Wimmer for the theme music Curtis Moore for the poster and I'm excited for some sports romance and we will see you guys next time on Reconsidermation take care bye now Inconceivable! You keep using the horde. I don't think it means what you think it means.